Daryl J. McLeod is Cree from Treaty 8 territory in northern Alberta. Before deciding to pursue writing, he was a chief negotiator of land claims for the federal government and executive director of education and international affairs with the Assembly of First Nations. He holds degrees in French literature and education from the University of British Columbia. He lives in Souk, B.C. and is working on a second memoir to follow Mamascotch. In the spring of 2018, he was accepted into the Banff Writing Studio to advance his first work of fiction. Welcome to The Bibliophile. Thank you so much. Just got a question about being a land claims negotiator, chief negotiator for the federal government. So you were negotiating against different native groups, or, or maybe it's not adversarial, but can you explain that? Because I just sure. wondered, it sounded like you were going against your own people. Right, I understand the question, and uh, that's certainly not the case. When I, I was recruited for the job of negotiator by the federal government, because I was working for the provincial government of British Columbia, and had a very difficult negotiation with the feds about a program that they were going to cut and that they were legally obliged to to offer which was adult basic education for for indigenous people on reserves and so I with a number of others we won our case and the feds recruited me to go and work for them and so I had an interview with the woman who ended up being my boss and at the end of the interview they said they really liked what I was what I said had said and they offered me the job. And my response was that I intended to work for communities and to be a social activist, working for positive change for First Nations communities. And I told them that if they couldn't handle that, they shouldn't offer me the job, because that's what I was going to be doing. And they offered me the job, and so that's what I did. And the chiefs, but the first group I was working with was a group of chiefs uh, from the Nutanoth tribes. They're on the west coast of Vancouver Island. There are 15 communities. Uh, we were negotiating with 13 of those 15 communities. And um, the chiefs knew what I was doing. The, the chiefs understood. My very first meeting, they actually said to me, because they were tough negotiators and very learned, um, and they said to me, what are you doing on that side of the table? Yeah, yeah. They had my reaction. Right. And my response was, don't you think they need a little bit of help? <laughs> Which brought laughter from, yeah. <clears throat> from the sort of 13 chiefs that were there. Right. <clears throat> and fortunately it brought laughter from my bosses too. They knew, the, they offered me the job because it was, they were having a very difficult time with that file. And the file had come to a, it, they had come to a stalemate actually. And um, so my job was to restructure the negotiations and get them back on track and I, I was able to do that. This was the, uh, the adult education file? No, or this no? was the New Channel First Nations, New Channel Tribes on the west coast of Vancouver Island. Okay. So I had shifted from working in education with the provincial government. I, the feds, federal government recruited me to go work with them. Okay. And so I accepted the job uh, with them to yeah. the negotiations. And, you know, it's important to point out that people kind of tend to lump First Nations in Canada into one group as if one homogeneous group. And even on that file, one of the people I worked with thought that I was in a conflict of interest position. Mm, that's what but, it sounds like. Well, but I'm Cree from Alberta. So and you're completely the, different. Well, it's like somebody who's French saying they couldn't negotiate with the Spanish because they had a conflict of interest because right. both from Europe. Because they're a different nation. It's a different nation and different yeah. culture, different language group entirely. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Although we do have similarities and we do have a, a, an affinity just like the French would have for the Spanish would have for the Portuguese. Yeah. They all speak Romance languages and have common cultural underpinnings, but I certainly wasn't in a conflict of interest position at all because, you know, I came from a different cultural group, a different tribe altogether, but I did understand the new channel of people and I was able to reach out to them in a way that the other negotiators probably weren't, mm-hmm. hence the stalemate right. uh, at the table. I because, I mean, you're, up- sorry, you're, uh, their objective is to get the federal government to live up to its word, I, I assume. Well, treaties had never been negotiated in British Columbia, so it was to create a new relationship, basically. So I that see. was the 
the objective of all the parties, the provincial government, the federal government, and the First Nations to establish a new relationship. I see. And in British Columbia, the, the tribes in most of British Columbia were given postage stamp-sized reserves, particularly the coastal First Nations, because the federal view was, well, they live off of the sea anyway, so why would they need much land? But of course, they did need a, a proper land base. That was their history. They also were land. They, they hunted on the land and uh, lived on the land and uh, had a strong tradition of gathering and hunting and had a strong, uh, an amazing relationship with the land. Mm. So part of the goal was to restore um, a, a decent land base to them. And I was able in that role to, to deliver some really important, uh, I guess you'd call it concessions, to First Nations on behalf of the federal government. We did a residential school apology long before um, the, the formal one, the other, it was a formal apology, but uh, before the big apology came from the Prime Minister, we did an apology to the New Channel on behalf of the federal government for their experience in residential schools. And we had um, an initiative called Treaty-Related Measures that we were able to deliver. Uh, it's sort of providing some advanced benefits because the treaty process is so very long, so prolonged. So, for example, I was able to, with the, the tribes, design a, a fishing initiative, like a $15 million uh, treaty-related measure for them to get access to fishing licenses and boats and uh, get a, their foot in the door with the industry. I was, I was really proud of my work there with... And in my second book, I do talk about my work, uh, some of that work. And I do talk about uh, the, po the apology, for example. One entire chapter mm -hmm. is devoted to the process of negotiating, which sounds strange, but we negotiated a residential school apology with the New Channel of Tribes. And it well, was I guess the wording, is, the wording is important, mm -hmm. obviously. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. So I was, and that was a, a few of my friends, my indigenous friends, my Cree friends were, you know, just on the, on the surface, they're saying, well, you're working against other tribes, you're working against, and I'm saying, I absolutely am not working against the tribes, and the people in government also knew what I was doing, mm. and, you know, I think it limited my career, because people, it was very clear whose side I was on, always. Yeah. Yeah. and with, with the kind of advocacy I was doing. But you and obviously didn't go against the wishes of the federal government. Oh, no. Be well, what you do, you don't go against anybody's wishes because you get shut down very quickly. Mm. But what you do is you have to find good logic to yeah. then put forward, forward amazing arguments to get concessions. Yeah. Um, so you have a mandate that you have to operate within. But, but it sounds like you're working on behalf of the... Of, of, uh, the, the nation, the native nation in BC as opposed to the government. That's what it just sounded like. Well, I was clear and honest with everybody, yeah. but I was completely transparent about what yeah. I was doing. No, no, it wasn't my goal was to get the best. My goal was to get the best possible deal for yeah. the tribes that I could, and I did my, my best to do that. Mm -hmm. And I was able to get some really key concessions. And I was there at key moments when, you know, things could have gone either way. And yeah. uh, I was able to tip the scales in a lot of cases, to the advantage of the First Nations that we were working with. Okay. Yeah. And it's important, I should say, it's <clears throat> there are um, Indigenous scholars, academics, and leaders who don't believe that we can make a difference by getting in, into the government um, yeah. as bureaucrats or as politicians. Mm -hmm. I think we should just completely opt out of it all. Um, but I was really inspired by a Maori leader I met, uh, the Maori of make great strides with the New Zealand government um, in terms of having their historic treaty recognized and getting key concessions and benefits and economic uh, advancement. And he said um, that the Maori felt they had to infiltrate the government at every level, in the bureaucracy and at the level of elected politicians, and etc. And <clears throat> I, I feel the same way, that if we had more Indigenous people in government as bureaucrats and as politicians, it would make a huge difference. Well, you know what what they want, you, you know, better than anyone. So there's no misunderstanding, is there? Well, uh, let's say I was I was willing to listen to what they wanted because mm -hmm. they're again they're a very different tribe. Yeah, they're a coastal tribe, but with a strong uh, connection, historic connection with the sea and living from the sea. And uh, so I had to learn and listen carefully to what it was that they wanted. Let's get into the book. Yes. You talked about residential schools. You talk very early on about uh, priests, Father Jal. Mm -hmm. Yes. 
uh, Catholic, and I had no idea that they were that influential in the whole system, but they were clearly were. Oh yes, there were strong ties between the church and the government early, in early days. In my area, it wasn't as strong as, for example, in Quebec, where the uh, the ties between the church and the state yeah. were really super clear. Yeah. Right. But the Oblates were the order, the predominant order up in uh, the the area that I'm from. Yes, which is they, which is northern Alberta, yes, right? Yeah, correct. Yeah. I'll just quote this here. But a strange look came over him, and he turned toward me. This is your mother, I think, speaking. Put his back to you. I thought he was raising his arm to make the sign of the cross, to bless us and the cabin. But instead, he opened his hand wide, and he fondled my breast. With the other hand, he started feeling me up. Uh, that was quite shocking. It just sort of came at the mm-hmm. end of that paragraph. Mm-hmm. Bang. Yes. Unbelievable. Yeah, and that's a story that mom, my mother repeated to me several times. Priests were given a, a were put on pedestals, to put it simply, in our in our community, and they held tremendous power. So that betrayal of, betrayal of trust was quite something. Yeah. And I wasn't sure how people would take that. Um, but something interesting happened when, when I'm on <clears throat> book tours, I encourage people to engage with me as they're reading or after they've read the book. Mm. And so it's really interesting to open my email or my um, messenger in the mornings to see who's communicated. And one a woman who uh, spent a year in, in Smith as a young teacher sent me a message one day saying, I'm so glad that you spoke about that priest because he was a real pig. She said... Uh, I spent one year as a young teacher, I was 22 years old, and in that one year, he sexually assaulted her. And so she was taking it up with the Oblitz. She, he, Father Jal, I'm sure, has long since passed away. Mm-hmm. But she's pursuing her case and what happened with her with the Oblitz, with the order he belonged to. Um, but it was interesting that reading that section of my book, and this is a non-Indigenous woman, this is a... Uh, young white woman. Well, she's not young anymore, but mm. she was young and white at the time mm-hmm. in the community. And uh, with in just one year there, she was she was sexually abused by that priest. Hmm. Uh, and where was that? That you 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 grew up in Smith. Between I started my life in a, a little community. It was just our own family, a settlement of our family near a place called Spurfield. And that was um, between Smith and Lesser Slave Lake. So like now it's three hours north of Edmonton, but by then at that time seemed like a lot. It was a lot. Yeah, it was much more arduous to get there. So it took a lot longer to and so what you really give us in this book is uh, is a memoir that has some some very, very powerful and disturbing episode stories that uh, that your mother has told you over the years and and the impact of of the residential school on her was awful mm-hmm. and you're you had to live through the kind of the, the results of that yes after hearing this story I understand why mother cried the day I told her I wanted to be a priest when I grew up. Yeah, we had a we had a priest after Father Jal. There was a younger priest who came to stay with us. He was a francophone, uh, Father Fournier, and he was a wonderful man. He was very kind to us kids, and there was never anything strange. And unfortunately, he was only with us for about a year. And I was so impressed by him that I ran home one day after uh, he used to let us uh, kids participate in mass with him after school we go to the to the church and he had his daily mass and he'd invite us to to join which was I thought was really really neat and so one day I was particularly inspired and I ran home and said to my mom I want to be a priest mm-hmm. just like Father Fournier and she just started crying yeah yeah and I was shocked. no I, idea I thought why, she would yeah. have been happy yeah that I wanted to be a priest she, and she said you can be anything else but I don't want you to be a priest well, so she got the message, but it took you a long time to reject mm-hmm. Catholicism. Right. Well, Mum was of two minds as well. We found out after she died that she continued practicing traditional beliefs and traditional spirituality through her entire life, but she did it in secret. 
she didn't even tell us about it, and we didn't know until after she died, <laughs> because we found her her medicine bundle. Um, but you know, when you get indoctrinated from the age of five or six, it's very powerful. She and other residential school survivors were there from the age of five or six, day in and day out, 24 hours a day, for at least a block of at least 10 months. And when you're told, indoctrinated every day at that age, and shown pictures of a fiery hell, yeah. and told that that's where you're going if you, if you don't behave yourself, if you don't do what you're told, and if you speak your language, and if you practice your culture. That was the big thing, was, right. yeah, don't speak Cree. Right, exactly, and, yeah. and don't follow your own traditional beliefs. Uh, the spiritual beliefs you had to accept to the Catholicism. So she had literally the fear of hell put into her mind, heart, and soul from the age of six, as did a lot of my other aunts and uncles. So out of fear for our well-being, you know, she, she felt she had to raise us in the Catholic tradition. But at the same time, she wanted to warn us about what could happen, that the priests and nuns weren't necessarily all nice people. So she, she find, found a way through her stories of giving us these types of warnings. Yeah, yeah. But I, on my own, at age 14, realized that it just didn't make sense. I mean, very, I'm a very logical and pragmatic person by nature, and I guess I was even then. And so I would go to church on a Sunday morning, and the first thing you're supposed to do is go to confession uh, so that you can then have uh, communion later during the service. And... The first question the priest asks you in the confessional is, how long since your last confession? And I would always start out by lying because I didn't want to tell him it had been six months or a year, or I often couldn't even remember, so i just make something up. Oh, it's been four weeks. Mm -hmm. That doesn't sound so bad. And then, you know, he'd ask what sins, and I'd usually make, make stuff up because as a little boy, I didn't know what, I didn't really understand what sin was, so my typical one that I went... My fallback sin was I say I stole a dime from my mom's purse, which wasn't true. I never stole anything from I didn't ever steal anything from my mother, but I thought that was you know that wasn't too bad. It was kind of a middle of the road, fairly innocent kind of sin. Mm -hmm. So he'd say, "Are you sorry for your sins?" And I'd say, "Yes, I'm sorry." And then go say ten Hail Marys, and you, you know you're forgiven. I give you divine absolution. So when I was 14, and this I went through that charade, I just realized this is ridiculous. Like I start out by lying and end up getting absolution for something I didn't do. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> and if there were any real sins, I probably wouldn't tell them, right? Uh, so I just realized it was ridiculous. And then friends of mine who were, you know, that the same age invited me to go to the United Church. And this is the plug for the United Church by any means, but um, in the United Church they at least had youth programs. They also had stained glass windows that you liked. They had beautiful stained glass windows, an amazing uh, pipe organ, historic, mm. beautiful pipe organ, amazing music. And they had these social programs. So for youth, they had, we had summer camps and winter camps. And at those camps, it wasn't indoctrination. They brought psychologists and fitness coaches. And they talked to us about, yeah. they teach us communication skills, basic communication skills self-analysis, the kind of gestalt therapy and positive thinking, how to uh, gain friends and influence people, that kind of thing. And it was brilliant. So I, I was... Plus they didn't have as many perverts, I guess. I didn't have any experience like that in the United Church, and I was really involved. I went to every youth camp from the time I was 14 to age 18 in, in Calgary. And uh, the counselors were all squeaky clean and very positive and helpful people who we could even contact in between events. So, you know, we had their telephone numbers in case we needed help during the... It, it was wonderful. Wow. Yeah, they were amazing people, and that really helped me along my path tremendously. So, This is jumping ahead a bit, but yeah. you get involved in uh, the evangelical church. Why'd you leave the United if it was so good? It was, again, in the influence of friends in high school. Some of my friends were um, actually born-again Christians, uh, and they were involved in the charismatic movement at the time. Yeah. I don't know if it's still called that, but um, they believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, like praying in tongues and uh, prophesying and miracles, that kind of thing. So um, I had a very charismatic friend, who, no pun intended, who convinced me that this was, this was real. And uh, for me, it was a very real experience. And it was another kind of family situation where the fellowship I belonged to took me in as they were like family, mm -hmm. and they were very supportive and kind, caring, 
until there again I realized that it was heretical when I brought others in and they you know put a friend a good friend of mine through a process that I didn't believe in but I could see from my heart and my spirit and my mind was wrong where you know he was a chronic sinner he had a little problem and <laughs> and he couldn't they didn't help him to get over it. They just expected that you know he would get over it on his own by warnings and. Uh, yeah, well, they said he was going to fry in hell, right? They basically they turned, turned his, him over to the Satan. Turned his soul, soul to, over to the devil for the destruction of the flesh. That's how they put it. They called me a youth elder, and they wanted me to participate in the ceremony. And I said, "There's no way." I said it was wrong. That this you can't do this. Yeah. Uh, when do you ever pray to the devil as a Christian? Why would you ever pray to the devil? It's like giving in. Yeah, exactly. So I left, and I didn't ever go back after that day. And um, mm. gradually, you know, other things happened that brought me to a different way of thinking and a different belief system, mm -hmm. and back to my own traditional spirituality. Yeah, great. Mm -hmm. Full circle. Early on, now this is page five, you reference, the birds are messengers, son. They'll help you, guide you through life. Watch them, talk to them. Right. And that kind of is a little bit of a theme throughout the book, which I thought was lovely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So do you pay attention to the birds? I still do. And what do they I'd tell like you? To. Depends on the situation and the context. I mean, a lot of times it's just comfort. Um, in my home, for example, there are, I, I have an acreage. In the forest on the west coast, there, there are lots of different types of birds. And generally, it's just pleasant. I mean, they lift my spirits. Uh, when I go out, sometimes I'll go out on my deck to, and with my guitar and sing, and they'll they'll come and sit on the on the telephone lines and uh, sing with me. It's quite quite amazing. It's a lot of fun. It's mm -hmm. beautiful. Mm -hmm. um, but other times, when there are special things happening in my life, they'll communicate messages to me. Like um, when my sister, who had gone through a gender reassignment, was previously my brother, was about to die. I got messages from crows that I tried to ignore. I was in Vancouver for meetings and right in the heart of downtown Vancouver there was a cluster of crows uh, dive-bombing me and I tried to ignore it. I, I knew that they were giving me a message but it was, and my sister Trina had been sick and uh, unwell, quite unwell for some time. I was just like, no, not today, not today and uh, tried to ignore it but um, events happened the, the day I got my sister died that very day. The day my mother died, she was in a palliative care unit and the very day she was uh, to die, I got visited by an owl at like six o'clock in the morning wow. in my the condo I was living in in, down, in Kitsilano in downtown Vancouver. So that's what roused me in the morning was this ruckus uh, downstairs by an owl that had gotten into the, the, the enclosed balcony. And I had to go down and deal with it. And I, I knew, I knew the message. I knew exactly what was going on. Hmm. And um, it upset me tremendously. And I, I thought if I could just get the bird out of the house, the message would go away with it. Yeah. yeah. And so that's what I focused on was getting a, a, a towel or a small blanket to sort of wrap around the bird and guide the bird out the window that it came in through. And uh, get it on its way. So it took me about a half hour to do that and I mean I was so distraught I knew I knew exactly what the message was. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, huh. So it was yeah. no surprise when you learned that she died then? No I knew it was just a matter of waiting for the call. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and uh, it did happen that, that day that morning. Yeah. Later in that morning. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So but mom had a, a more elaborate relationship with birds than I do. Is If you can imagine somebody who you know lives in nature a hundred percent of the time day in and day out and her and her family just lived in uh, they had progressed from teepees I don't know if it's progression but they had gone from living in teepees to living in larger canvas uh, house-like structures but they're made out of canvas of course there's no electricity no running water and they were in the thick of the bush uh, so she had this very special relationship with birds and animals that I wish I had and maybe when I get older I'll, I'll have a more in-depth relationship, but she had a very elaborate relationship with, with <laughs> nature that was really powerful. That's a gift. I mean, you know, when someone dies, you really want to have a sign. You want something, especially after they die. You want sense. something that shows you that maybe they're still somewhere. Well, and also that the universe is 
paying attention to yeah. that this is important. It's an important event. There's mm -hmm. something going on that's changing uh, the structure of your world and universe and um, their implications uh, in nature. It's, it's, it's wonderful. You uh, just referenced the fact that your brother Greg and, and, and your uncle Danny, mm -hmm. well both of them, had a sex change operation. Yes. Uh, what I found interesting was that gender pronouns he and she don't exist in Cree. Right. Yeah, it, it's, it's a different worldview. It's a very different worldview. And then you say, is that why my older brother Greg and my uncle Danny could play at dressing up as girls so often without mother getting upset? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've researched the gender issue in uh, Native American communities because, because of course it was a big theme in my life and I wanted to know how my own tribe and other tribes in North America viewed gender. And it turns out that what I understand, uh, there was a indigenous anthropologist who did a lot of uh, work in that field and ended up doing his PhD thesis or his dissertation on and it ended up being a published book on gender in indigenous communities in North America and um, turns out many tribes in North America had recognized something like six or seven genders so it wasn't binary it wasn't male yeah. female it was yeah. they were like six or seven different genders that's neat and yeah, yeah it is it's fascinating yeah. Yeah. gender was a continuum not a not a binary kind of mm. situation mm -hmm. You talk about the fact that your mother, when she was away at the residential school, she craved the food that uh, she used to be fed. Uh, and I love this here. Stewed moose ribs, fried whitefish, the marrow of moose thigh bones, thinly sliced deer meat, boiled potatoes and carrots, sweet red willow shoots, and dried or stewed berries. So, so do you like that food? Oh, I love that food, and I, I grew up on that food. And uh, mom was passionate about food in general, but she was extra passionate about our traditional foods. And some of my fondest memories are of um, being fed, sitting around Sunday mornings eating fish head soup with uh, my younger sister. And us sort of picking apart the, the head and eating the brain and the eyes and everything. We weren't grossed out as kids. It was before we knew we should be grossed out. <laughs> so we were quite, the, you know, toddlers. Yeah. And uh, then yeah. another fond memory is sitting with my sister, who's four years younger than me. They would put us on the floor. They put like kind of uh, brown paper bags under us and just set us on the floor. And there would have been a, a moose thigh bone femur roasting all day in the fire or in a big oven. And then my stepfather and my uncles would take a, a hammer and crack it in half and give one half of the bone to my sister and a half to me. And then give us red willow shoots to dig the marrow out. And so we just sit on these paper bags, not worrying about making a mess or anything, and just pulling the marrow and little bits of meat out of the, out of the bone and eating it, just having it running down our faces. It was just beautiful. But I still love marrow, and people now good are recognizing, for you too. People yeah. are recognizing that yeah. now, and yeah. you know it's a gourmet item now in restaurants. So you pay mm. a lot of money for for bone marrow, mm. uh, but yeah. And uh, mom was really passionate about our traditional foods. We used to, as a family, go picking berries. The first berries that were ready were gooseberries, so we go picking gooseberries, which is kind of lost. It's uh, people don't do that much anymore. But mom would make a stew, a type of sweet stew out of gooseberries, like pudding. And then next, strawberries, wild strawberries. And that was a whole family affair because in uh, wild strawberries are so tiny that it takes hours and hours and hours to get any quantity. So mm. we go out as an army <laughs> and pick the berries. And we get enough uh, for her to jar some. We'd have a feast. She'd bake us, uh, she'd make a strawberry shortcake for us, which is uh, still one of my favorite things in the world. And um, we would can the strawberries, and so we knew we'd have uh, canned strawberries at Christmas time. She always brought, saved them for Christmas. Mm -hmm. And blueberries uh, were next. No, raspberries were next, and we do the same with the raspberries and that we do with the strawberries. And then blueberries were next, and one of my favorite foods then and now is uh, pie made from wild blueberries. Mm -hmm. And uh, my cousins are still crazy about uh, about and still go harvesting wild blueberries every year. Mm. And uh, then after that was cranberries. 
and we go harvest cranberries and then we make a type of sauce with the cranberries and jar them. It was uh, just wonderful. Mm. But the moose meat, um, I still love moose meat and deer meat and uh, I was just home for a celebration when I got nominated for the Governor General's Award. My family insisted that I come home for a celebration mm -hmm. a gathering. So we went and... Um, Where's home? Home is now Smith between Smith and Slave Lake. still there. Yeah. So half of my cousins live in Slave Lake and the other half kind of live in Smith or between the two. And uh, so the celebration was in Smith and uh, we had moose stew, um, pie made from wild blueberries, deer stew, and they gifted me some dried moose meat to bring home and that's like gold for us. That's one of our most prized foods. Is, uh, is that like dried. beef jerky? It's like beef jerky but made with moose oh, and okay. it's, it's smoky. Um, right, right. Yeah. And we eat it typically by dipping it in butter. Yeah, it's delicious. Your mom was an alcoholic. Yes. Why, did you think that her experience in the residential school had anything to do with that or not? Well, I don't want to oversimplify, but, uh, you know, I think it was a, a series of things. And so certainly... Hereditary, too, partly, I guess. I don't well, my, great -gra my grandparents weren't alcoholics, neither no. were my great-grandparents. Okay. My Mushum, who mentions, is mentioned quite prominently in the book, um, yeah. to be in his late 80s. And uh, he would have a drink once in a while, but uh, he was a very healthy man and a very spiritual man. And definitely not an alcoholic, not even not even close uh, to being. Yeah, no, it's an unpleasant stereotype. Right, and but my grandparents. The fact is, she was right. right? So, she was, but yeah. I'm just saying that my my grandparents weren't, and yeah. so it yeah. wasn't hereditary. Wasn't hereditary, yeah. No, and not in my family. It no. may be in others. No, I know it, it tends to run along. Apparently, the it does. Yeah, it that's does. What I mentioned yeah, sure. It. Yeah. And uh, but in my case, luckily, my grandparents weren't. My grandparents were very healthy, as were my great grandparents. In mm. fact, my great grandparents were all healthier. They all lived to be in their 80s and 90s. My grandparents, unfortunately, my grandmother on my mother's side died of tuberculosis at age 48. Right. But the others lived to, to be in their 60s and 70s. Great-grandparents lived to be in their 80s and 90s, grandparents in their 60s and 70s. My generation... Lots of death. Yeah, I lost two siblings at age 31 and another at age 48. Yeah. So it was, in fact, something that helped convince me to retire from full-time work early. Because I kind of did the math and I thought, well, if that's the average life expectancy, then the odds are working against me pretty strongly. I need some some uh, free time to do mm -hmm. the things that I want to do. And look what's happened. Right, exactly. <laughs> it's a but, pretty good decision. Yeah, but there yeah. were, a, a, in addition to the, the, the residential school, which was tragic, there was a series of deaths uh, when mom was a young mother. So her mother died at age 48, and then uh, a year later her older brother died, who, sh who she was very close to. And then my father died when she was like six months pregnant with me. Yeah. So she had two children already, a, um, a seven-year-old and a five-year-old, and then a baby on the way yeah. when her husband died. And she, she loved my father a great deal. I don't think she ever stopped loving him. Yeah, that was really devastating for her. Right. right? And yeah. so those yeah. three deaths within yeah. a short period, I think, was truly what drove her to drink. Yeah. And then she remarried an amazing, a really nice man, a good provider. He was 20 years older and the relationship didn't go well. So when that relationship started souring, I think that was what pushed her over the edge. And uh, she started drinking. And that was the reason that they moved you out of there? Or you, you went out, you... you uh, Mother well, left. She, That's right. Yeah, she, she would mm -hmm. you say she abandoned you or is that too strong? No, she did. She totally abandoned me and um, I went through a whole new anger phase when I was writing the book and reflect, you know, you have time to reflect yeah. on things like that. So yeah. I went through a whole new anger phase against my mother as I was writing the book. But mm -hmm. yeah, she did abandon me and um, four younger siblings. And, and for she took up with another another she guy. Met a, she met a man, uh, a, a Swedish Canadian man. She, a truck driver she met in the bar and they hit it off and she left to with him to go to Edmonton and uh, yeah we were devastated and hmm. my I was fortunate my older sister had already married and she took me in to live with her my four younger siblings went into a foster home it was a good foster home but they were still traumatized by the whole experience so she didn't have the sense of duty or responsibility I guess or what was it I think she did. She Honestly, just love was too much of a draw for her? I think she didn't know what else to do. I right. think she was, the relationship was on the rocks with my, um, 
My stepfather, mind you, he never would have kicked her out or us out. He was too kind. And he kept on as a responsible parent, right, until he died. I mean, he, yeah. the whole time we were growing up, he he went to visit my younger siblings in a foster home. He sent, he sent money. money, too. Yeah. He sent money, yeah. and once we were back with my mother for a brief period, all together, he always came to visit, and he always sent money and provided for us. He's a great man. Yeah, he was, but it just wasn't meant to be. And they yeah. ended up being friends later in their lives. Before Mother died, they were kind of reconciled, and they, they couldn't live together as a couple anymore, but they were friends. But yeah, Mom, did she definitely did abandon us. And, um, mm. you know, my I don't think my younger siblings, I, I know one of my younger sisters really struggled with forgiveness. And I think yeah. after Mother died, she did was able to forgive her at some point. But um, I don't know if they've, if the others have truly been able to forgive her. Just back at the res, uh, residential school, there was a, a line here. Uh, they gazed at the floor, glancing up only as each girl moved to the front of the line to have her braids cut off. I couldn't help but thinking of the concentration camp. Very similar dynamic, I think. Absolutely. And a lot of children did die in the residential schools. I mean, that's something that came out during the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And a lot of the, I think that was the deciding factor when the government finally started closing residential schools. Mm -hmm. It wasn't because of the poor uh, education that was being provided. It was because of the death rate. The death rate was inexplicable and unacceptable. They scoured her body with scrubbing brushes designed for wooden floors and put them in uh, flower sack dresses. You turned out amazingly well. <laughs> How'd that happen? Thank you. <laughs> well, I, I have an answer that sounds a little bit, um, maybe a little bit simplistic, but yeah. I had angels along the way. Right. And uh, I strongly believe that. And, you know, I can count the angels on my two hands. Um, starting with my school teachers, Mrs. Earl in grade four, um, Mrs. Olson, Mary Olson in grade eight and nine, the band teacher, Miss Emmons, mm -hmm. and then later my band teacher, Mr. Ferguson. They all took a strong personal interest in me and mentored me and did very concrete things that helped set me up on a positive track. For example, Mrs. Um, Olson and Miss, her name, Miss Epson, just worked together, Miss Epp, worked together to get me a scholarship to go to a music camp. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, at the time was at Camrose Lutheran College, but it was a government of Alberta music workshop for youth. Um, and you had to be 16 and up, but I was only 14. They got me in anyway. They wrote letters and, <laughs> and I had to work in the kitchen to pay because I didn't have any money. So they, they gave me a, a job working in the kitchen part-time to pay for uh, my tuition and yeah, but you were also a really smart kid and, uh, and also uh, motivated in a I way. I think they recognized that. Mrs. Yeah. Olson certainly recognized that and she told I mean, it was always, it was obvious, I mean, without meaning to brag, but, you know, in those days, teachers did what teachers shouldn't be doing anymore and they would differentiate. So they'd hand out, when they handed out the tests, they'd hand out the, the top marks first. So if you got 100%, you got your test back first. So everybody knew. Yeah. And, yeah. um, and There's I was nothing not a, wrong with that, yeah. I don't think. Oh, but. And all through school, I was I always got all A's and all H's when we had H's for honors. I, my report code was always, and I was sometimes the only one to get all A's and all H's. So I stood out. Mm -hmm. And But, you know, there were a lot of other smart kids, too, who didn't get mentored the way I did. And I got mentored uh, by those people. And uh, it was very special. Yeah, and so in a way... Like, you're, you would say that you're the exception that proves the rule because you're able to get out of this awful situation, but it's your individual sort of outstanding qualities that allowed you to get out of this. And that's rare. Is that right. what you're saying? Well, yes, but there, there's, you know, as a teacher I learned that um, the first five years of a child's life are the most important formative years. Mm -hmm. And my mother was the best mother in the world in my first five years. And I had aunts and uncles 
who yeah. gave me abundant love, and my sister Debbie, who you know I was her teddy bear. She carried me everywhere she went. Yeah. So I had that amazing love and nurturing in my first five and six, five or six years of my life, and I strongly believe that that set me up uh, with an inner strength and a confidence that didn't ever go away. That's so crucial, isn't it? You got it really is. you got unconditional mother's love, mm-hmm. and that you were you've been able to what call on that to help you throughout your whole life mm-hmm. it just that it, it doesn't go away mm-hmm. that you knew that you were special right my mother and my ancestors my, my great-grandfather was always with me as well he lived until I was uh, until I was nine and yeah. he was a, a, an incredible role model for me a beautiful beautiful man I mean there wasn't a day uh, where <laughs> he wasn't busy working on being a provider uh, he was on out on the trap line or he was uh, dealing with his furs or selling his furs. Uh, he was out on the trap line and hunting until two weeks before he died in his 80s. He would still go out on his own, yeah. alone, yeah. trapping and hunting. He's quite an amazing man. And then my aunts and uncles and cousins, I mean, I was just surrounded by love. I was, I was very blessed. So what is it? Is it uh, the fact that the communities now, are, you know, the parents aren't giving love to the kids? Because look at the awful suicide rates. Mm-hmm. Like, is it the fact that parents are just screwed up and they're not giving love to their kids? What is it? Well, so many, our family, our extended family, was disrupted so badly. Um, we were forcefully relocated from our settlement because we weren't on a reserve. I'm, in my second book, I write about uh, the negotiation of Treaty 8 and how it happened that so many people, families were missed, mm-hmm. missed out during the Treaty 8 negotiation process. The government intended to go back and deal with those families, they never did. And it was also the time when the government had switched its policy, they moved away from creating reserves to, they were going to give land, what they called lands in severalty. So they were going to give acre allocations to individuals and individual families. Yeah. They didn't do either. They didn't ever get around to doing either in the case of many families in northern So it was another Alberta. broken promise then, was it? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, unfulfilled Treaty 8. And they actually missed a whole bunch of people in Treaty right. 8 right. when they negotiated and did the, the enrollment of Treaty 8. And that if, uh, must have deeply affected the, the, the families. In absolutely. The and the dis- many families, many communities have experienced the type of disruption that we experienced. Mm. So we lived in extended family groupings on our own in the woods and we were you know for thousands tens of thousands of years and we were successful and happy and healthy and lived long lives but we were forced to move into manageable manageable units so the government could give us social programs and services ostensibly uh, which wasn't ever well done and still isn't being well done Mm -hmm. but so many communities across the country experience this type of disruption the disruption results in what, a sense of hopelessness? Is that what it is? Well, the colonization process in Canada was rapid and it was brutal. Yeah. And that story is only coming out now, that we're only understanding how rapid and how brutal it was. It's true. It's true. We, we Over Growing up, years. it's no, nowhere, anywhere in my education. Nothing. Right. Yeah. And uh, so within a hundred year time frame, entire tribes of people, you know, had their language disrupted, their culture, their extended families disrupted, mm. their way of life disrupted. And what I'm trying to, to illustrate in my book is they even had their sexuality disrupted. Yeah. Sexual patterns and practices and beliefs about sexuality were disrupted mm. and colonized. So mm. we were, as peoples, we were colonized on all levels, very quickly and, and brutally. Yeah. And we're recovering now. And fortunately, you see more... I love visiting cities like Saskatoon, Regina, Edmonton, Calgary now because you're seeing young families, young indigenous families that are healthy and happy and uh, on a good path and it's so wonderful to see. In my work in education I loved going to graduation ceremonies at places like UBC where and other universities but I was involved with UBC and going to ceremonies where they're graduating like 30 new indigenous teachers, uh, five new doctor, medical doctors, yeah, yeah. 10 lawyers they're role models that you know their people can look up to, right? Well, and most of these people are going to go back to work with their own communities yeah, and their yeah. own families. So, powerful, powerful role models. I was in, as you know, the GG winners, Governor General Award winners, were in the House of Parliament yes, yesterday. Yes, yeah, we got a standing so, ovation. Did you? Yeah, we did. Yeah, and yeah. It was poignant 
extra poignant for me because I was sitting up in the public gallery looking down at the government side and there was Jody Wilson-Raybould there, who's the Minister of Justice, mm-hmm. and she's Indigenous from British Columbia. Yeah. And she recognized me. We've, we've met in the past, and she waved, and I waved to her. And it was just beautiful to see, you know, that mm. our Minister of Justice is this amazingly accomplished Indigenous woman. Yeah. And, you know, she was the most poised and dig- dignified person mm. in that whole assembly. And maybe that's just a personal view, but <laughs> while the others were but doing their... Whining and... Antics of, yeah. you know... Acting up, she was dignified and, and graceful the whole yeah. time. I was, I was just so moved. It was beautiful to see, and that's a historic thing. So we're getting more of that kind of thing too. Yeah, I, and in fact, the Massey lectures, you know, just recently. Right. Yeah, now, I, I, uh, this may not be politically correct for me to say this, but I think the pendulum has swung to a point where, like, whenever I turn on CBC Radio, it's there's some conversation about what a bunch of monsters white people were. Hmm. And I just wonder what a white person like me, middle-aged, quote, privileged, unquote, uh, is supposed to do. Feel shame, feel Hmm. guilt, I mean, certainly feel empathy, I can do that. And I'm feeling good that, that things are changing Right. But as I say, it's it's like the public broadcasters, they're they're trying to make compensate for all the bad things that happened in the mm-hmm. past. Mm-hmm. What do you say to that? Well, in some cases, they may be preaching to the converted because likely the people who are going to listen to those programs are already on side mm-hmm. and are empathetic, sympathetic, and possibly helpful to indigenous people that they come across. But we still have a lot of work to do. So, for example, I spoke, I was here in Ottawa about a month ago, and uh, I spoke at two different high schools. And things have shifted already in some regards. So, ten years ago, I used to speak in colleges, and I'd always start by asking the students if they knew anything about the tribes around them, like, whose territory were they on? Who were the traditional inhabitants of this area? And they couldn't tell you. I asked that, I started by asking that same question in these two high schools, and they knew they were on Algonquin territory. Yeah. That's, that in itself is huge progress. And they knew that those people aren't gone, that the Algonquin people still exist, that they're, they're modern descendants of Algonquin people still alive. Mm. So that, that right there was powerful. Um, I think, you know, we have so much work to do in urban settings, like Victoria, Vancouver, I, Ottawa, I've spent less time here, I'm assuming Toronto. You know, people are very politically correct, and they say indigenous, they say First Nations, Aboriginal. Uh, they rarely would say Indians anymore, but sometimes they still do. So we are moving along a certain path of progress. But in rural areas, there will be helpful and progressive people in rural, rural areas too. Mm-hmm. But when I come across, I've been confronted by people from rural Saskatchewan, for example, who will just say to me when they realize that I'm free, like, well, what do the Indians want? Yeah, we've what been spending so much anyway? money on you over yeah. the years. What what are we supposed to do? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So, I, how do you my, respond to my that? My answer is get to a, a sincere, genuine dialogue. Yeah. Between so stop hating if you do hate the indigenous people around you, yeah. uh, actively or passively. Just start talking to the people in the street. Understand my, what happened too. In my, in my workplace and other contexts, I would tell people, I don't care if you like me or if you love me. Mm-hmm. That doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. What matters is how you treat me. So if we can start treating each other with basic dignity and respect, and that goes all in all directions, that's a really good starting place. So people who haven't been doing that, if they can start doing that, and find, yeah. a, find a way to start treating each other with respect. But in fairness to um, white people who still don't like indigenous people, um, you know, they been brainwashed over yeah. the years and it's even yeah. been by the official well, government the stereotype yeah. the government used to up until about 10 years ago the federal government would release statistics about we spent 6.1 billion dollars on Indians through our Indian program last year and you know putting it out there like to make it sound like they're doing something magnanimous right but they wouldn't talk about how much they'd spent on northerners 
and they spend a whack of money as a on percentage, oilers, whether yeah. they're indigenous or non-indigenous, yeah. or on rural Canadians who live in rural areas and need a lot of subsidies. Yeah. There's no context There's no around context. that six, but six billion. Right. sounds like a hell of a lot of money. Yeah. But so in, if in, you break it down to like uh, uh, fifteen thousand dollars per person per year for social programs, and they're spending twenty-one thousand per year per person for other Canadians, you're right. It isn't a lot of money. In fact, it's well, look less. what they spent on General Motors. Right. And, you know, and I don't know if this isn't common knowledge, but there was a cap on funding since Paul, Paul Martin was uh, finance minister. Paul Martin was uh, successful in putting a, getting cabinet to impose a funding cap on all, pro, all of the Indian program. Um, and that lasted from Paul Martin's day until recently. I think it was this uh, liberal government that removed the funding cap. So it didn't matter how much the population was growing, yeah. And it was the the native population of Canada was growing at four times the rate of any other population. And it didn't matter how much program costs went up; they go up significantly every year. Funding levels could only be re increased by two percent per year. So you can imagine the funding gap in yeah. education, social services, family and child protection—all of those things just fell way behind. And now, you know, people kind of throw their hands up and they're, "Well, how are we supposed to catch up?" You know, it's going to cost us take an infusion of billions, and and the communities aren't ready, you know, to manage that kind of money. So it's it's really frustrating to watch. But so I mean, the answer to your question is start just treat treating Respect. each other well. Yeah. And for the government to as a basis, as an operational thing, to equity, equity is a good starting point. The same same funding levels for social programs for indigenous communities as there is for the rest of the population. That's a really good starting point. That's a reasonable request. Yeah, exactly. You were sexually abused. You talk yes. about that, mm -hmm. quite frankly, and graphically. Yes. And that doesn't have anything to do with the fact that you're, you're uh, an indigenous person, though, necessarily. Well, or except do you I think, think it, it does? Was, it was easy, it's easy to victimize people who are vulnerable, so I was part of a vulnerable Right, the Canadian because, segment of the because Canadian he population. wasn't an indigenous person. Right, yeah. And chances are, back then, had my sister or I tried to rally against him, that nobody would have believed us, or would have gotten stifled very quickly. Our complaints probably would have gotten stifled very quickly. Yeah. Now he was going out with your uh, your older sister Debbie. Yeah, he ended up marrying her. He married her at a very when she was very young. Right. He married her, but he came up with this line that said, I will never have an Indian kid with her. Can't have a child with Indian blood, was how he put it. Sounds like a real dick. <laughs> yeah, to put it mildly. He was, he was charming at the beginning. He was mm. um, charming, but it only lasted a couple of years. Mm. I think he would, I, well, I know he was, he was a pedophile. And by age 17, when my sister was 17, she was already too old for him. He lost interest in her. I heard him talking to her buddies about, you know, her when they thought I was sleeping on the couch. Mm. He was complaining about her body already when she was just 17. Your book is filled with the coffee and cigarettes. My eyes were, <laughs> my eyes were watering through us. Yes. Mm -hmm. yes, indeed. Everybody smoked. And then you got a guitar. That was uh, nice for Christmas. Yeah, Debbie. Debbie, that was Debbie's gift to me. Yeah. She knew I always wanted one, and she was the first one to come through with it. And she brought me a self-instruction book, too. That was wonderful. And I still play. I've never stopped playing. That's an important part of your life. Sure is. You were involved with the uh, choir, the the Calgary Symphony, was it? Calgary Philharmonic Choir. Philharmonic Choir. Yes, for yeah. a few years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They play with the Calgary Symphony. They're the, the vocal branch of the Calgary Symphony. Calgary Philharmonic Orchestra and Choir. It was an amazing experience. This is a. This was a bit of a. I wasn't quite sure what was happening here, but uh, uh, this is about your mother again. Then I saw her, I gasped and froze. Mother was alone in the living room beside the couch on all fours, naked. Mm -hmm. She had curved horns coming out of her head. Mm -hmm. I, I was wondering, is this your imagination or was this, she did actually do that? And this is, she was drunk, of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, we had just come back from church. I, I suppose it was an illusion, 
but at the time it was very real. That's what I saw. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then so I. That's what I thought. It was a bit. You left it a bit. I wasn't quite sure. So I shoot the kid. I mean, I didn't stick around to, to look. I mean, it it scared the hell out of me, to put it mildly, no pun intended. Yeah. But I shoot the as my usual pattern was to shoot the kids upstairs, get upstairs quickly, and then I went upstairs. But she came after us with a belt. Yeah, with a belt. Yeah. And that was that was the line that she crossed. Absolutely. Yeah, I was old enough. That was, that was a powerful moment because I. I wasn't. I had to defend the kids physically. I knew I had to defend them. There was no way I would let her touch the kids. Yeah. And I was the oldest one, and the one in a position to do something about it. So we had a physical struggle, and I realized that people that who are amazingly drunk don't have any physical strength. And so one level of fear kind of dissipated because she was like a sprite, you know. And uh, so I realized that people who are extremely drunk. I mean, it, there's a different thing if they become psychotic, because I, I have this theory from having observed so many people uh, being incredibly, like, past the stage of being drunk, uh, days without sleep and lots of alcohol. I think they go into a type of psychosis. Mm-hmm. I haven't really researched it, mm-hmm. but that's my personal theory, where they don't know what they're doing anymore. And uh, I think when, once they get into that psychotic state, potentially they get strength back, I'm not sure. Uh, but I, I learned not to physically be afraid of very of people who are very drunk anymore because they don't have any strength. Mm. They can be threatening and that's empowering. It was very yeah. empowering, and yeah. it, it was important an important realization for me because I still had others. That was I was age I think I was twelve or thirteen there, yeah. and I still had other you know physical encounters with family members who were very drunk. So it was good to know that uh, at least I didn't have to worry about being physically afraid of them. Yeah. And you poke fun at the uh, love storyline. Love yeah. means never having to say you're sorry. I that, that was very good. Of course, saying sorry is important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I made my sisters and brother sit through four four nights in a row of a love story just to <laughs> get out of the house. Yes, yes. And then there's a scene where your mom throws a beer bottle and smashes it into Debbie's face. Mm-hmm. Jeez. That was brutal. And how old were you when that took place? I was about 13. Yeah. Debbie would have been 20, I guess. And she was beautiful. She was beautiful and peaceful. She wasn't She wasn't violent at all. Yeah. So it was certainly not, um, it wasn't like a mutual altercation or anything like that. It was really unfortunate. But Mother, unfortunately, like a lot of people who were drinking, had a violent streak when she would get drunk. And that was one one time it came out in a horrible way. And, and getting back to the sexual abuse that Rory was his name, you craved the physical intensity that you'd experienced with him. So I guess you must have been kind of, well, obviously very confused about your sexuality. Mm-hmm. And the fact that that was such an intense experience, I guess that never left you, right? Well, you know... I was lucky, like later I talk about um, taking, having this expert in, in uh, sexual abuse prevention uh, named Meg Hickling come and speak to my class when I was a grade four teacher in Vancouver and I sat in on her sessions and um, it really helped me to understand my situation that um, a lot of times um, the sexual experiences a child will have when they're being abused can be physically pleasant. And also there's another dynamic when it's with a power figure where, you know, you're having this intimate relationship with some, uh, somebody who holds a power position in your life. And um, that brings a whole different element, you know, uh, into the mix. And so it, it's incredibly intense. And yeah, and with Rory, unfortunately, it was, it was almost, it was a daily event. And so, you know, when you have two or three years of this kind of intimacy, even though it's perverse. Mm-hmm. Um, it feels yeah, course, good. Yeah, physically, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a huge release. Um, yeah. And you know, at that, it, when it happens at that time when you're just, a, a person is just coming of age sexually themselves, you know, the, the intensity must be magnified by 10 or something, tenfold. And there's that whole power thing too. Yeah, this. the authority figure. Yeah, yeah. so 
it, it was really strange. And yeah, I, I did miss that, that type of, um, it, it left a, a gap in my life that I didn't know, I didn't understand and I didn't know how to fill. Yeah. And it also left me with a huge uh, unresolved sense of guilt that it was wrong because of my Catholic upbringing, you know, it was a major sin and it must be, in terms of the, the, the sins, it, might have, it must have been off the scales. Right, right. So I thought, you know, subconsciously, I guess I was convinced that I was going to burn in hell for that. And uh, yeah, it was, it was very, it was incredibly confusing. And then I guess you got into some dangerous, uh, sort of reckless sexual experiences yeah. as, well, a res- with, as a result of that, you think? Oh yeah, I became... Filling a, that void, you wanted to? Yeah. yeah, I didn't have alcohol addiction, I didn't have drug addiction, but I think what happened with me sexually was that in those three years with Rory, I developed a sexual addiction to sex. Yeah. And uh, luckily, I, you know, I was able to keep it under wraps, so I was yeah. never embarrassed by it. Um, I was never really found out, and it didn't. It did impede my my performance at school, and I think a bit in university, for sure in high school though. It really because I was confused, and <clears throat> it has damaged my my adult life, my sexuality, my adult life yeah. tremendously. You know because yeah. I felt, and I get a bit to this in my second book. I felt confused and unfulfilled. My whole life, you know, yeah. even though I did have a couple of longer-term relationships, mm-hmm. and I've been single for the last twenty years, well, largely be... because of that. Because I just, it just, afraid of intimacy and uh, emotional intimacy with women, not afraid of the sexual in- intimacy, nor afraid of the sexual in- intimacy with men, but not finding the emotional fulfillment with men. So it's like, ah, just, yeah. but I've been happy. I've been able to cobble together a, a great life. Yeah, you have. I mean, it's a success, big success. Right. And, you know, more and more people are staying single these days. Oh, yeah. And uh, by choice. And and happily single. (laughs) Yeah. No, and and talk about feeling of sort of strength and independence. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I I have a great life. But, you know, people often ask me, you know, if I don't, people who know me well ask me if I don't feel I'm missing out on something by not having, um, not being matched with somebody not having a yeah, partner. significant other yeah. partner, yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear you're uh, satisfied with your life and not craving. I can't complain. I haven't, I can't complain about anything. Yeah. Uh, my life is just yeah. so, so amazingly wonderful. Yeah, I'm so, so grateful. Well, and this book is, uh, it's very, very honest and it's, uh, well, I think, you know, you are a role model. You see yourself as a role model. I I don't see myself as a like just define. I don't define myself as a role model, but I hope I'm a bit of a beacon that I can a bit of a guide that people will by being with me, spending time with me, and by looking at my life, people will maybe find a way out of their own predicaments mm-hmm. if they're feeling limited or restricted or or sad. That I'll be a bit of a beacon to help them find find their way out of situations that are unhappy for them. And finally, uh, you say that the Indian survival mode is humor. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. In fact, at one point, and I talk about this in my second book, mm-hmm. my career got so intense that, you know, I was just like, I was dealing with, I was working for the Department of Indian Affairs and I was in charge, I was the director of intergovernmental relations in British Columbia. And there were tons, so everything that wasn't treaty related landed on my desk. Oil and gas consultation, and we had a Gordon Campbell in the Liberal government. In his early days, he was very anti-Aboriginal, tried to kill the Niska Treaty, have it, he was, took it to court to have it declared unconstitutional. Um, he did huge cuts to funding for social services, and I was had to do a, the federal response to all of that stuff. So. It, you know, I was in intense meetings, day in and day out, and um, I ended up taking a course in stand-up comedy because I realized I haven't been laughing. So I took a course, I thought, I have to do something deliberate, and, and that's typical me being the geek and nerd I am in some ways. Mm-hmm. Well, so what do you do? Take a course. Right, right. <laughs> so Langara College fortunately had a, a course in stand-up comedy by a psychologist and comedian named David Granerer, and um, it was brilliant. So. Mm-hmm. You know, I had to write comedy, and so that was my assignment. So at home at night, I'd be 
trying to do my chores and you know write my lines and the punch lines wouldn't come to me until I was in bed half asleep <laughs> and then it was just like uproarious laughter and then I you know I'd be awake till two in the morning because I just couldn't stop laughing and so I'd have to get up and write down my punch lines and, and stuff like that it was it was good and then I had to do a, a practicum as a stand-up comedian do some performances mm. in public in Vancouver it was really really good and it stayed with me um, Still, That's great. Yeah. I mean, but I, I like to say that I, <clears throat> I became a comedian because people were laughing at me anyway. Right. <laughs> and they were, but in good, in a good spirited way. Not at you, but with you. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for, uh, for the interview. You're welcome. Intense, but good. Intense. Yeah. Yeah. Good. That's yeah, what I'm after. Questions, which is good. Daryl J. McLeod is the author of the. Governor General's Literary Prize Award-winning book for nonfiction called Mamascat, A Cree Coming of Age, and it's published by Douglas and McIntyre. And we'll look forward to the next. Yes, it won't be long. September 2019. Thanks very much for your time again. Thank you.